So on today's episode, we'll be discussing myelofibrosis and jack mutations. Uh, so we're trying to give you everything you need to know about the cancer diagnosis, uh, about mutations that are commonly seen in it. Uh, and so hopefully you can learn something new today. Uh, we'll be learning from Dr. Abdul Rahim Yakub. Uh, so he has a lot of experience with this cancer type. He's going to answer some of our most common questions about myelofibrosis. So before we begin, Dr. Yakub, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thank you very much, Jackie. And I would like to thank Massive Bio for shedding a light on this very important and very dynamic disease. So this is absolutely the right time and the right disease to discuss. Um, um, we're the best place in, in, in science where we're making big strides. Uh, I uh, am a hematologist oncologist at the University of Kansas. Uh, I specialize in blood diseases and blood cancers, particularly the family of cancers called myeloproliferative neoplasms, in which myelofibrosis is the most prominent cancer. Uh, I, um, um, uh, I have a busy uh, clinic with dedicated to patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms and an extensive research experience with clinical trials, uh, trying to advance our knowledge of this disease and our therapeutics for this disease. Great. Yeah. Thank you for that background. I think that helps us moving forward into some of the details. It helps to have a little bit more of a background. Uh, so uh, let's move on to jack mutations. Can you tell us a little bit about what jack mutations are and how common they are in cases of myelofibrosis? Excellent. So um, to give you a, a kind of a, a, a simplification of this. So um, many cancers require a driver, an engine. To, to move the cancer forward. And in, in the majority of cancers, we actually do not know that engine. So a, a lot of times it's just, it's just a group of, of factors that drive cancers. In myelofibrosis and the, um, specifically and the myeloperative neoplasms at large, we have been able to identify drivers or engine that drive those cancers. So um, we all have a protein called JAK2, it's a part of a receptor that controls how our cells behave and grow and how our blood elements are produced. It also controls how we respond to chemicals, how we get a fever, we don't get a fever, how growth factors affect our body and how itching and tiredness and fever and sweats at night and pain, all these sensations go through a receptor that requires a JAK1, JAK2 activity. So um, in patients with myeloperative neoplasms and, and in myelofibrosis, there is a mutation of this protein, of actually the gene that carries this protein. So this mutation results in a JAK2 that is always active. It doesn't turn on and turn off. So it's just firing all the time and giving signals to our cells all the time to keep producing cells, um, stop responding the right way to chemicals, um, produce all those additional chemicals and symptoms that patients manifest. So it drives almost every feature of what patients experience. It matches exactly with how they feel. So this gain of function mutation um, puts those patients at a disadvantage and, and gives this cancer an extra strength 
and momentum to keep manifesting its, its, its features. Now, there are two other mutations that um, basically end up with the same outcome. So one is called MPL mutation, and one is called caroticulin mutations. So these three mutations, JAK2, MPL, and caroticulin, whichever one the patient has, they end up basically having the same presentation and the same disease because they all end up resulting in the same process inside the cells and the same disease inside the cells. And whichever is the driver mutation, so now we call these three the driver mutations because they actually drive the cancer. You can only have one of them, by the way. You can't have more than one uh, because one is enough to cause the cancer. So um, and, uh, those driver mutations are the main source of the cancer process and the cancer symptoms and the cancer outcomes. So JAK2 is the most common mutation. It was the first one to be discovered um, because it's the most prevalent. It's, it's, it's present in around 50 to 55% of all mutual myeloid fibrosis. Well. Cardioticulin is the second most common. It's present in around 25% of patients. And MPL is around 5%. So all of them together is around 80% of patients with myeloid fibrosis. We will find one of those three mutations. Um, and then that leaves 20% of patients who don't have any of the three mutations. Uh, we call that triple negative uh, myelofibrosis. But whichever is a mutation, the actual outcome, the actual disease, the way we see it on the microscope, the way patients feel, the way we see it in a, in a blood test, they all are identical. Um, there are technical dif differences as we treat patients or which mutation they have. But whichever mutation that happens in 80% of the patients, they'll have at least one. They will all manifest the exact same disease um, and they will respond to the exact same therapies. So can you talk a little bit about how we test for JAK mutations and these other kinds of mutations? Uh, and then you actually touched on it a little bit, I believe, but can you go a little bit more again into kind of the overall prognosis um, that or how the JAK mutation would affect the overall prognosis for myelofibrosis patients? Yes, good question. So um, I'm going to start with the second part first. So um, you know, as we uh, just stated, there are different driver mutations. There's the JAK2 mutation, the caroticulin, the MPL, and the TRIP, and then the patients who don't have any other triple negative. So in general, in general, we think of caroticulin as the most favorable or least unfavorable uh, mutation, um, and and um, we think of um, patients who don't have any testable mutation as the least favorable because they just have a mutation, we just can't find it. So um, we think of the caroticulins as being the least bad diseases and the triple negatives are the least favorable diseases, and, and the JAK2 would be right in the middle. So that's one way to think of prognosis. Uh, the way we test for these mutations is a simple blood test. Um, so there's a simple blood test you run uh, after you have enough clinical suspicion. So somebody who has abnormal blood counts and symptoms or a big spleen, and then the doctor thinks this is something I want to test for. It's a very specific test. You have to ask for it specifically. And, and on a blood test, you can get that result, whether it's positive or negative. And if it's positive, we actually now have the technology to measure it. Is it 10%? Is it 99%? So 
And that is also sometimes is important. So that's one way to transport it. But also, um, many patients with myelofibrosis will eventually have a bone marrow biopsy. And um, we um, um, can run a more extensive panel of testing on the bone marrow that includes tens or hundreds of other genes if we want to. Based, again, based on the clinical suspicion. So you can run all those tests in the bone marrow and get the same results, basically. And they do correlate. Blood testing and bone marrow testing both correlate. So um, this is the pro prognostic value on how we test for JAK2 mutation. But to take this back another step, we actually have ways to predict prognosis for patients. It is not only based on the mutation. It's only one of those factors. There are more um, extensive and more thorough assessments that we can do to actually talk to a patient consider their clinical issues and their DNA mutations and their general health and assign them a certain prognosis that predicts some of the likelihood of their outcomes based on that. One of those is the mutations, but there are other important things that can help us guide patients into what should they expect from their disease. So there are other uh, tools we have for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh... It sounds like it can be definitely valuable information to have, just knowing whether a patient has these genetic mutations, um, just in terms of prognosis and determining treatment. Um, so would you say that a patient who has been diagnosed with cancer should always get genomic testing? Uh, and if not always, what would be the cases where they should be tested? That's a very timely question. Um, this is actually, um, there has been such a big revolution in, in our cancer practices in the last five years, not just blood cancers, all cancers. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, it uh, and this comes from the fact that we actually have better technology now. We have a lot better ways to test for genomics and, and that word means what are the DNA events or errors that cause cancer. Uh, that's the word of what uh, cancer genomics means. So basically, we have such a much more sophisticated tools to be able to test cancers and find the DNA of the cancer. Also test the patient because the cancer is a, a new disease inside a host and the disease might have additional DNA errors that the patient doesn't have. Um, so we can test the disease and we can test the patient and um, we can get a lot more information. Now, there's reasons why we do that. It is definitely not cheap to keep running excessive testing. But there are very important implications in why do we even test patients for cancer genomics. So um, one, it helps us understand the disease. So if I get a patient with myelofibrosis, I do the cancer gene testing and test for that. And, and based on the outcome, there are certain DNA mutations that tell me a lot about how they're going to do in the future, whether it's good or bad. So that's important. Um, but in other diseases, um, finding certain diseases can, can also imply a certain cancer predisposition, whether it's inherited cancer syndromes or familial um, cancer diseases and so forth. So some of that um, might be helpful. So our guidelines in, in, in cancer have changed a lot in the last five years. So at least for blood cancers, we, we've had this tool a lot longer than other colleagues who don't practice solid tumors. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because we didn't always have these tools. So it's nice to know that we have these tools to help drive our medical decisions, treatment decisions. Um, so yeah, very interesting. Uh, so yeah, you started to talk a little bit about treatment. So I, I'd like to go there next and talk a little bit about treatment for these cancer types. Uh, so what are some of the approved therapies available for myelofibrosis, specifically with the JAK1 or 2 present? Hi, thank you. So um, so again, as we um, uh, just stated in patients myelofibrosis, the most common mutation is JAK1, JAK2 mutation. Um, but there are other mutations, and there are patients who have mutations that we don't have a test for yet. Um, but in general, the way we treat those patients is the same, uh, because whether it's JAK2 mutation, whether it's the MPL or the caroticulin, the actual disease is the same. And um, in, after you get that driver running, everything, the car is moving. So basically, you want to stop the car, regardless of how what engine started it. Um, so we approach myelofibrosis patients with a diagnosis of myelofibrosis equally the same, regardless of which driver mutation or lack thereof uh, at diagnosis. Mm. So um, we have had no reasonable options until um, ruxolitinib was approved um, in 2001. So ruxolitinib is a selective JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor. Um, it was studied um, in uniquely in patients myelofibrosis because of the uh, biology is driven by that cancer. But it was studied in all patients with myelofibrosis, not just JAK1, JAK2 mutation, because if you look at the myelofibrosis cell, it will look exactly the same with Chivar as the mutation. So ruxolitinib was, was studied in this disease, and the results of it was a lot better than anybody expected. So... Ruxolitinib results in very effective control of the cancer symptoms. Um, and patients with myelofibrosis have significant disease burden of symptoms. Um, weight loss, cachexia is actually a lot of the reasons why patients used to die from myelofibrosis is they just can't eat because the spleen is so big pushing on the stomach and they just, they, they, and it was a, one of the reasons patients did not do well because of that. So that is the first thing to get better. Actually, patients thrive much better with myofibrosis. The symptom burden reduction is 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 very prominent. Um, it also shrinks the spleen, um, which is um, in myofibrosis, an enlarged spleen is a hallmark of the cancer. Almost all patients have enlarged spleen. Enlarged spleens cause significant symptoms. And the bigger the spleen, it actually correlates with poor longevity or survival. The bigger the spleen, the shorter the life. And reducing the spleen actually prolongs life. Inch, inch for inch, it actually improves a life expectancy. Wow. So ruxolitinib is a very powerful in that in that domain at shrinking the spleen. And, and, and that's resulted in significant improvement in patients how they feel and how well they did long term. And um, because of all these benefits, patients with myelofibrosis have actually had near doubling of their life expectancy with, since, since uh, Jacofi was approved. So patients who received ruxolitinib as first-line therapy have significant improvement in their outcomes and their longevity with therapy. So we treat patients with ruxolitinib since 2001. This has been a revolution in our cancer treatment. Um, 
It wasn't until um, 2019 until we got the second JAK inhibitor, Vidratnib. So that's also approved now. Um, it's also approved for first line sitting, and we often use it beyond first line. Unfortunately, these are the only two options that are available commercially. Um, so I would love to keep going, but <laughs> it's a list of two. This is all we have as an approved therapeutic option. So yeah, it sounds like the options, treatment options are pretty limited. Uh, so do you know, are there alternative treatment options that are available through clinical trials for patients with the JAK mutation and with myelofibrosis? Absolutely. So yeah, that is the only way to help patients now, the only way to help the, the field move forward mm -hmm. and help patients immediately. Um, and invest in a future where we have more options is to advance our paper trial uh, research. So um, just highlighting what we just went over today. So myelofibrosis, diagnosis-wise, we still have some, you know, 20% of patients where we don't know the mutation. Uh, prognosis, we, we try to predict the future. We still are, you know, somewhat accurate, but we can improve on that. First-line therapies, we have two options. Um, Ruxolotinib has been around longer with a lot more promising results. It, it basically is our first-line option. And we don't have other first-line options. We don't have combinations. We don't have therapies beyond first-line. So there's definitely major need for improvement. We definitely need uh, a lot more knowledge and tools to help our patients. So clinical trials are experiments that are ran to see if this particular tool you have can help patients either diagnosis, prognosis, or treatment. So let's focus more today about the treatment part. So in ruxolitinib is again, it's been a revolution for myelofibrosis, but there are still patients who have little benefits from it or not satisfactory results. We call that suboptimal response. There's definitely a role for improvement there because there's nothing to help those patients um, um, improve on their status quo. They've already got the best treatment out there, but the best treatment out there is not good enough for them. Um, so that is actually a very robust um, field of research. Basically, patients are ruxolitinib. You identify the patients who are not doing the best, and you add a booster to it or a combo mm -hmm. that makes ruxolitinib even work better and deeper and last longer. So that's also that's a rational concept where if somebody's on Ruxolitinib already, can you do better? Yes, there are trials that can help them do better. And um, and I definitely encourage patients, even patients who are doing well on Jackafee, there is room for improvement there. So that's something patients should seek and physicians should seek and try to improve on that. So that's one arena of improvement. And then um, after the eventual in and then let's go back to examine our first line. So ruxolitinib for everybody, right? So that's what we've been doing all along for so long, for 10 years now, 11 years now. So um, can we do better? Yes, there are trials that try to examine. Like if we know that ruxolitinib is great, what about ruxolitinib plus X? Maybe the combo is better than ruxolitinib. And there are trials now trying to investigate to see if ruxolitinib is the best way to go or is it to be ruxolitinib with other drugs. There are at least five clinical trials going on through the country at asking the same question. Um, 
should we treat patients with one drug or two drugs from day one? So maybe everybody should get two drugs from the first one. This booster, why wait until patients are not doing great? Why just give it at the beginning and let everybody do great from the beginning? So that is also an active research. So I also would encourage patients and doctors, you get a new patient with myeloid fibrosis, before you actually do the first line therapy, why don't we examine that? Maybe there is a better option. Maybe there's a combo clinical trial that the patients can enroll in. Um, but yeah, you talked uh, a lot about how the treatment tends to be similar for the different mutations. Um, but we talk to our patients a lot about targeted therapies for different mutations. So do you know of any developments that are occurring in targeted therapies for these specific mutations? Um, or do you think it will continue to be kind of similar treatment for all the mutations throughout? No, this is a, this is also a, a growing field of interest. Thank you for bringing that up. So um, you know, we, um, so again, among the three mutations, the counterreticular mutation is the most unique because it results in a certain DNA mutation that it, of a certain protein that is supposed to remain inside the cell, but that protein, when it's mutated, um, it exits the cell and binds on the surface of the cancer cell. So it kind of feeds the cell as a growth signal. But this exposes a weakness in the cancer because now you have a protein that is never supposed to be on the surface, but it's on the surface. It's an antigen. It's a target. So you have a big red dot about those cells. <laughs> so now there is momentum of trying to investigate whether we can use our immune system to find those cells that already are vulnerable. They already have a target. So in that, so for the cat reticular mutated patients, there are momentums for vaccine therapy or immune therapy in which we can target those cells because they have that extra target. So that is going on for catarticulin. Uh, that's still going on sort of early in that in the field. Uh, but there's no other specific mutations for the, the other, um, other um, mutations. But then as we run our extensive genomic panels, um, we can identify secondary mutations that we can target, just like the IDH1 and the there's an IDH2, different mutation with different drugs. So we're also finding other mutations that can also be a target. So that's the advantage of this extensive testing that we keep identifying unique uh, unique targets so we can target, target patients. Thank you so much. Those were a, a lot of the common questions we get from patients. So thank you for answering those 